Uh, hello, as Tim said, my name's Sean, and I'll be reading uh, the Bible tonight. Uh, the passage is Isaiah chapter 7, verses uh, 1 to 17. When Isaiah, son of Jossam, the son of Isaiah, was king of Judah, king resident of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramallah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jasub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose your heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remelah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remelah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, divide it among ourselves, and make Tebel king over it. Yet this, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remelah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the law to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now. You house of David, is it not enough that you're trying the patience of humans? Would you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So what do you do? When your back is against the wall... And you have nowhere to go. When the pressure is mounting and there is no clear way forward, there's no sort of clear way of knowing what is best, no clear pathway forward in those moments when you just don't know, there's no clear wisdom on what should be done next in your circumstances, where do you go? Who do you rely on? Who do you fall back on? Is there anyone you can trust to get you through when the sadness overwhelms? When the worry starts to bubble up inside you? When the trouble comes? Even in those terrifying moments? Where do you go? Who do you rely on? Well, these are the questions that are flying through the mind of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the line of David in Isaiah chapter 7. That's a lot to take in, but there's going to be a little map. 
Uh, He's just come to the throne. He's 20 years old. It's the year 735 BC, and the world is a turbulent mess. In the far-off land of Assyria, the king is making noises about conquering the world. And he's already flexed his muscles, and the other kings and nations around him are genuinely fearful. And with that in mind, Rezin, king of the Arameans, and Pekah, the king of Israel, have joined forces in an unlikely militia to try and hold their ground against the might of Assyria. But they know that just the two of them are not going to be able to do it alone. And so they're calling upon Ahaz to join them in the battle. Because they know the more troops they can get to work together, the more likely they are to defend against the might of Assyria that is coming from the north. But Ahaz, he's resistant. No pathway looks right. His back is against the wall, and he knows Assyria is coming. Now, joining the militia, he knows, will lead to almost certain defeat by Assyria. But if he chooses not to join the militia, well, Rezin and Pekah have said they will come after him, and they will take his troops anyway, and they will take his treasures anyway, and they will take his leadership anyway and impose someone else. Indeed, it looks like lose-lose. So it's no surprise that when we get to verse 2, we're told that the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. You see, here is a king and a ruler and a nation that are in the grip of circumstances they cannot control. And there is an uncontainable, unrestrained fear moving among them. But that's not all that's moving among them at this point in time. Indeed, the grace of God is also in their midst. And you see it in verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shea Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of the launderer's field and say to him. See, God is present in their midst. It's not like God's abandoned them. They're in the worst of circumstances right there in Judah, but God is very present with them at that time and speaking into the circumstances. Now, you might find it a little funny that I would call that the grace of God, that God would speak into these circumstances. You might even call it the kindness of God. It is sort of strange to call God speaking into circumstances such words, but in the case of Ahaz, it's entirely appropriate Uh, because Ahaz is, as my mum would say, a real piece of work. Uh, in, in 2 Kings chapter 16, this is how Ahaz and his kingship is described from verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. That God would speak to him is so full of grace and kindness. 
And so it would come no surprise to me, though, that if the words God actually said were, you're on your own, mate, and that's it. Uh, For far from pursuing the things of God, Ahaz is involved in despicable acts. And if I was God, I'm not sure I'd be sending messages of grace. But God is not like me. No, it's not God's heart. For as we've seen through our series in 2 Samuel, if you've been with us, God is for his enemies. Last two studies we did in 2 Samuel, we saw his kindness flowing out to enemies inside the camp and enemies outside the camp. God is gracious to those who oppose him. He's committed to bringing people into his love and he's committed to his own promises to bring hope and blessing for the world through this little nation of Judah that Ahaz is leading. And so God says to the evil man Ahaz from verse 4, he says, be careful, keep calm and don't, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and a son of Ramalia. See, in the eyes of God, these two kings that he fears from the north, uh, they're, they're like the ends of bonfire night. You know, when, when all the fire's about, it's just smoking bits and pieces. Their, their time is almost done, God says. There's no need to be afraid of them. Indeed, he goes on. Yes, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart. Divide it among ourselves. Make the son of Tabeel king over it. Let's put a puppet king in who'll do what we want, who'll fight with us against Assyria. Yet, verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the face of their plans, here's God's plans. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Romalia's son. He's saying to Ahaz, hang on, do you know who the head of your nation is? That's God. They've only got people, two of them smoldering stubs about to go out. That's all they have in their midst. But God is your victor. God is your strength. And God is your power. They only have hewns, but you have the Lord God Almighty. So his back is against the wall, but God is right there and right now being gracious to Ahaz. God is with you. God is your mighty warrior. And God is Lord of all. Your back is against the wall, but you can depend on him, Ahaz. Now, that's great news for the king. Now the path is clear, right? Keep calm, he says. Don't be afraid. Trust in God, who has the power to protect you. But equally, let's keep reading verse 9, because there's a warning here. The end of verse 9 God says through Isaiah, if you do not stand firm in your faith, if you don't keep trusting me, if you don't keep listening to what I'm saying, then you will not stand at all. Your back is against the wall, but God is with you, so depend on him. And if you don't, if you don't stand firm in your faith, if you don't trust him, You won't stand at all. 
So as we read through Isaiah 7, for us reading along, wondering what's going to happen in the story, the big question for us is, will Ahaz experience the blessing of God by faith? Or will the judgment of God be his experience because of unbelief? Now, now I'll tell you what happens next is because God knows the heart of Ahaz and he wants to show him kindness despite his persistent sin. And so God invites him in even more. And God says, come Ahaz. I, I know things aren't great between us, but come and let me prove to you I'm trustworthy. Let me prove to you that I am dependable. And so God says to him in verse 10, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Now, in other parts of the Bible, including in the words of Jesus, as he's being tempted by the devil, Jesus himself says, quoting Deuteronomy 6, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, But here it is different. It's the Lord inviting Ahaz to ask him for a sign. It's the Lord inviting him in. This isn't some weird sort of test that God's going to say to him, do this, and if he does it, he's going to get double-crossed. No, that's not what God is like. The magnitude of the offer here, anything in the heights or the depths of the whole universe, you can ask for, and it is yours. There's God's willingness to actually prove to Ahaz that he is who he says he is and that he is trustworthy. But Ahaz says, no. Verse 12, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. That's not piety. That is a self-absorbed, fear-induced narcissism. He thinks he can come up with a better plan than the one God has. And so the Lord fulfills his promise to Ahaz from verse 9. And from verse 13, Isaiah says, Hear now. You house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. See, having said no to God, God's going to say no to him. The news for Ahaz is that he will be completely destroyed. But God's plans are not destroyed. God says he will bring forth a son, one called Emmanuel. And when he is eating curds and honey, just the simple food of little children, he will then know how to actually do what Ahaz could never do, and that is to discern right and wrong and to reject the wrong and choose the right. He'll seek after God's own heart. He'll represent God to the people, and he will be one through whom God will bring about his promises and plans. And so who is this son? The people who were right here in the days of Isaiah, who would they be thinking this son might be? Well, it could be the next king of Israel, right? Another king who's coming. More likely, though, I think God is referring here to his faithful people who will be given birth to out of Israel, his daughter that God calls Israel. 
and that there will be a faithful group of people who will actually seek after God's own heart that will come forth. The faithful in Israel who are waiting for the Lord. Now, if we understand verse 14, though, you can feel that hope springs forth there, can't you? The faithful in Israel, those who do want to follow after God, those who do want to follow after his promises, well, they're captive. They're captive to the plans of Assyria. They're captive to the plans of the nations to the north. And now they're captive to Ahaz and his kingdom. But God's promise in verse 14 is that out of the ashes, he will bring a son who will be Emmanuel, God with us. And despite the evil of the king and the diabolical circumstances they find themselves in, God promises he will not leave them. He will not abandon them. He will bring forth hope in the form of this son. And perhaps with you and me, you can just imagine if we were among the faithful in Israel. If we were among those who looked at Ahaz and just thought to ourselves, what are you doing, man? Seek after the Lord. And then we hear this promise here. You can imagine those faithful people crying out with Isaiah, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come and rescue. Come and save us. Come now, for our plight is desperate, and the ruler of our own nation is leading us to destruction. You can imagine them crying out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. So, what do you do? When your back is against the wall and you have nowhere to go. When the pressure is mounting and there's no clear way of knowing what is best. No clear pathway that looks best and no clear wisdom on what direction you should head. Who do you rely on? Who do you fall back on? Is there anyone you can trust to get you through when the sadness overwhelms? In the moments of worry, in the moments of trouble, or even when things are terrifying. These are the questions that fly around our world. Perhaps they're even the questions that you've come in tonight with in your head. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that not one of us is able to create plans that will never fail. And not one of us is able to control our existence. Not one of us is able to make plans that always come to fruition. Indeed, the last two years have been filled with disappointments and struggle for many people. And again, now, the disappointment and the potential struggle is sort of got a casting a shadow over our community again this Christmas. A Christmas that was so full of hope is now looking hopeless for many And can I say that it's right to lament and it's right to question. It's absolutely right to look over our circumstances and seek for the face of God. Even to ask, where where is this sovereignty of God that we talk about from time to time? 
Where is this sovereign God? And what has this sovereign God got in hand for us in these sorts of moments? To many, God's sovereignty looks weak. To others, God's sovereignty just looks strange. And not just in these COVID moments, but when we look at what happened in Tasmania in the last week, as we reflect back on just the lives of some amidst our congregation this year, perhaps to a lesser extent as we think of each one of us and the things we've had to endure over the last two years, in these moments when your back has been against the wall, can your God be trusted? See, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like trees in the forest when they saw the strength and determination of their problem, their enemies. They could hardly even begin to think of the goodness of God and God's promises because their immediate circumstances were so overwhelming. And doesn't that describe life today from time to time? When the immediate is so overwhelming that you cannot think of anything else. And the call to trust God in those moments it just can appear as too simple a thing such that we are tempted often to look for a more spectacular or impressive solution to our problems. Even a more spectacular version of God. But what we see in the Bible is that trusting God requires patience and perseverance. And particularly when everything around you is falling down. When there is impending disaster or failure is just around the corner. For indeed, God can and does rescue his people from crisis. But here's something we don't often say to each other. Yeah, God can rescue from crisis, but do you know, God often rescues his people through crisis. He did it with Assyria. When Assyria completely crushed Israel and then Babylon after them, sort of enemy after enemy, God preserved a faithful remnant and that remnant returned to the land after centuries of trial. And he did it with Jesus, his own son, who he crushed at the cross to death. He rose Jesus up from the dead through trial that he might be victorious over all. And friends, he will do it with you too. For when a crisis comes, therefore, we never get beyond the need to keep trusting God, no matter how difficult the situation is or how mature we might count ourselves as Christians. For faith always remains fundamental to a relationship with God because it honours God as God. It takes him at his word and it waits for him to fulfil his promises. Faith acknowledges that he is sovereign and we are not. Faith acknowledges that he knows all and we do not. Faith acknowledges that he always loves and brings good, even when we can't see it in the moment. And all that makes faith crucial and yet painful and hard. Because God doesn't always rescue from. 
Sometimes he rescues through. Just ask Ahaz. When Ahaz is called to trust God, his heart won't do it. His heart won't look to all that God has done in the past. It won't look to God's faithfulness. It won't look to God's trustworthiness because he's so overwhelmed with the now. And so he says to God, no. And so friends, what about your heart? You know, we need to be people who train our hearts, who prepare our hearts for life as it is. In the good times, we must incline our hearts and place our trust in God. So when life does go mad, you can incline your heart to look to all that God has done in the past, to his faithfulness and trustworthiness. For it's sometimes in the moments that you need your heavenly father the most that you will find him hardest to see. But he is there. And he is for you. And it's in those moments that he's calling out to you. Will you experience the blessing of God by faith? Or the judgment of God? Because of unbelief. And so here's the challenge of Isaiah chapter 7. It's a call to believe that God can bring hope and can bring life out of terrible moments. Uh, that he can allow a destructive enemy like Ahaz to flourish and yet still bring good for his faithful people. That he can bring his people to new birth through pain. And so responding by faith to this reality is hard. But we're not alone. And you're not called to have faith as if on your own strength or just with your own courage or with your own bravado. No, what does verse 14 say in Isaiah 7? that Emmanuel will come, and indeed, he has come. God with us. God, who promised to always be with his people gloriously, has come in Christ. And so we don't look ahead to what God will do to assure us of the work of God, but we can look back at what he has done for us in Jesus and it is the coming of Jesus that is the definitive and climactic fulfillment of all of God's promises here in Isaiah chapter 7. Indeed, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so it's not just that God gave a sign to Ahaz, though he did give a sign to Ahaz. It is that God has given a sign to the world. And God has given a sign to you. That his son has come and that he promises to be with his people forever and ever. And indeed, his son made that exact promise in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. When he says that by his spirit, he will be with us to the very end of the age. And so, with the presence of God with us in the spirit, we are now called to trust him. And we know he is trustworthy and, the work, and works for the good of his people, for we've seen him do it time and time again in the past. His consistent, loving character will ensure that he will continue the work of good into your future. It's just what God is like. And what matters is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the one your faith is in. 
And our God, well, he is strong. And he is faithful. And he is trustworthy. And he is good. And you know what promise he's made to you? The very last verse of the Bible, the very end of all that stuff in Revelation, he just simply says this, Behold, I'm coming again. And so we too can be those who cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. So what do you do when your back is against the wall and you have nowhere to go? Well, you recognize that you always have somewhere to go. Indeed, God is always with you. And so you stand firm in faith and you will stand because the one you have faith in never fails and never falls and never fears and never flees. He has given us a sign that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus was born as that sign and as a promise that those who trust in him will pass through all this life might throw at them and still at the last receive the gift of eternal life. But be warned that if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so this Christmas and every Christmas, And indeed, on every day of the year, I want to encourage you not to be like Ahaz. Keep trusting Jesus. He is your only hope. And he is with you. And you can be certain of this, that he is coming. Amen.